Good morning. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is Friday, February the 16th, 2024. And today we are continuing our podcast series highlighting Laura Snyder's working papers, various aspects of citizenship taxation. And I am joined, obviously, with Laura Snyder in Paris and Karen Alpert in Australia. It's still dark outside for me early in the day, late in the day for Karen. And Laura is right in the middle of the day in her energetic prime and ready to go with today. How is everybody today? Great, John. Thanks. Laura, what's happening? Well, as you said, it's right smack dab in the middle of the day. Okay. This is working paper number eight. And Karen, as has become our modus operandi, could I turn this over to you to lead the discussion? Okay. Okay. So extraterritorial taxation number eight, more violations of equal protection. So in the last paper, we were talking about how Extra, the extraterritorial tax system violates equal protection. But that's not the only thing in the 14th Amendment. So, Laura, what other violations of the 14th Amendment do we find with citizenship taxation? Well, what we see as a result of a series of Supreme Court decisions is we see a violation of the doctrines of second-class citizenship and the doctrine of animus. And these are doctrines that were developed by the Supreme Court after Cook v. Tate, which is the 1924 decision that's considered to underpin the uh, the current extraterritorial tax system. Okay. So, so we've got one of them was about second class citizenship. That was the first one that you've got that, that we're violating that says that basically all citizens should be equal and should be treated the same. So how, how does that fit into the extraterritorial tax system, Laura? Well, I'll give you a little bit of background. Where this doctrine comes from, it's basically pinned on a, on a 1964 U.S. Supreme Court decision, Schneider v. Ruff. And this is about a woman who was originally a German citizen born in Germany. And as a child, she moved with her family to the United States where she was naturalized as a U.S. citizen along with her parents. And then when she was an adult, she moved back to, to Germany to, to live. And after several years of living outside the United States, she applied for a U.S. passport. And uh, the State Department rejected her request, saying that under the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952, She'd lost her U.S. citizenship because she had returned to live in her country of origin for the, you know, required length of time. And under that act, it was true that naturalized citizens would lose their U.S. citizenship if they maintained a continuous residence in their country of origin for three years. But as the court pointed out, only this only applied to naturalized citizens. It did not apply to natural born U.S. citizens. They could live outside the United States in any country of their choosing for an indefinite period. And just that fact alone would not mean that they would automatically lose their citizenship. And the court commented on this. They said that 
this statute based on on what they call an impermissible assumption that naturalized citizens as a class are less reliable or bear less allegiance to the United States than does a native-born citizen. And the court says this is an assumption that is impossible for us to make. A native-born citizen is free to reside abroad indefinitely without suffering loss of citizenship. The discrimination aimed at naturalized citizens drastically limits their rights to live and work abroad in a way that other citizens may. And so then this is where the court used the term second-class citizenship. And they said that whether a citizen is naturalized or or native-born, living abroad is no badge of lack of allegiance and in no way evidences a voluntary renunciation of nationality, nationality and allegiance. And they say it may be compelled by family, business, or other legitimate reasons. And what you see here, the parallel with our situation, is you see that you've got, again, a group of people, Americans living outside the United States, because they are living outside the United States, they have to, they are subjected to very penalizing rules that other citizens are not subjected to. And if you look at our paper number eight, there's a table that, you know, lists many of what these are. I think there's a total of 23 things that are listed to show how Americans living outside the United States are, are considered, are treated as second class citizens. And so what you see is that their their financial and other activities are penalized in a way that the, the financial and other activities of U.S. residents are not penalized. Most tax credits are reserved for U.S. residents and denied to people who do not live in the United States. Overseas Americans have much more complex tax returns, much more, you know, with subject to draconian penalties in the event of error. Overseas Americans are excluded from IRS services as compared to what services are provided to residents. Overseas Americans have to submit a list of the accounts they hold in their country of residence to a financial crimes enforcement net- network. U.S. residents don't have to do that. You know, there's the list goes on. So that's, that's essentially what's meant by second-class citizenship and why the current rule violates this U.S. Supreme Court doctrine. John, will you agree that Americans abroad are treated as second-class citizens? Yes, I would agree that Americans abroad are very clearly treated as second-class citizens. I'm not sure. I think the question then becomes, to what extent is this the effect of the laws versus the intention of the laws? A difference, I mean, I think Laura makes a, a very, very interesting and compelling argument over the Schneider case, which, by the way, was very, very interesting because, as Laura points out, this this was an equal protection case, and it predates a foreign, right? You know, the other and or an other Fourteenth Amendment case. So it it, should, it sort of shows that you know citizenship has been a difficult problem. You know, I would say in U.S. constitutional law, but yeah, I think that. There's little doubt that the accumulative effect, at a minimum, of all these laws have made U.S. citizens second-class citizens from a U.S. perspective. But I don't think we should leave out the fact that U.S. citizens are actually the lowest class of citizen in any other country they live in because of because of fact and citizenship taxation. Bank account closures, the inability to invest in 
certain kinds of financial products. I did a podcast with the infamous Amy from Sydney a week or so ago where, you know, and the reason we did the podcast was because she had tried to open some kind of investing account in Australia only to be denied because and only because she's a U.S. citizen. So, you know, yes to all. Mm-hmm. I think another another interesting thing, I think U.S. has a very, very long history of weaponizing citizenship in one way or the other. You know, we talk about certain groups of Americans being second-class citizens, and I, I think the three of us surely would agree that Americans abroad are, you know, carry burdens and disabilities that resident Americans don't, and therefore are second-class citizens from the U.S. point of view. It's interesting how the tax code in other ways has created different classes of citizenship. Uh, One would be, and I'd be interested in your views of this, both of you, the dual citizenship exemption from the exit tax, right? You know, if you're born a dual citizen and you, you know, have not had a sufficient connection to the United States, you can actually avoid the exit tax when somebody who was born with only one citizenship would not be able to do that. What do you think of that as an example of second-class citizenship or classes of citizenship? That's, that's quite clear. You know, it's basically saying one type of citizen deserves worse treatment than the other does. One is better for for reasons connected to their circumstances of their birth. Right. That's exactly right. I, and, and connected to the laws of that other country, too, because it could be that, you know, someone born to, you know, non-U.S. parents living in the U.S., it could be that based on the laws of the country that the parents are from, citizenship is or is not granted to the child. Yeah, I mean, a fascinating case in point, I believe I'm right on this, but a person born in the United States to a Canadian citizen parent would be a Canadian citizen from birth. But a person born to an Australian parent in the United States, if I'm correct, I think I'm correct, would not be an Australian a citizen. They'd have to apply for Australian citizenship. They'd have to go through a naturalization process, right? Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, it's it's amazing stuff, right? I mean, on the one hand, we can say that the U.S. employs the citizenship taxation stuff, but you know, if we look at the whole exit tax rules, I think we could say that it also uses citizenship as a criterion for non-taxation, right? Yeah, well, a second citizenship, certainly. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, you know, this is a you know a very interesting uh, aspect of it. I mean, the whole issue in Schneider uh, versus Rust, you know, I think continue continues to play itself out. Lord, to what extent? Uh, and I don't know the answer to this, but to what extent was the decision in Schneider and Rust? Did that factor into the Supreme Court's decision in Aforium at all? I don't remember. I'd have to go back and look. I, I probably did, but honestly, I'd have to go back. You know, that that would be a very, very interesting question because, you know, the whole litigation over citizenship in the United States 
has a very long and interesting history. I mean, it's almost as though you could write a play, you know, Act One, this case, Act Two, that case, you know, where gradually there's sort of an accumulation of, you know, citizenship-induced problems, right? Well, there, there's a, what was his name? Patrick, I, 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 his last name has escaped me, but he Wild? was... Um, yes, thank you. W-E-I-L, is that how you pronounce it? Wild, I don't, I don't know, but yeah, W-E-I-L. Yeah, he's an academic anyway, right? Yeah, but he wrote uh, two, three very interesting pieces on Chief Justice Earl Warren and basically his crusade against all of these penalizing, you know, rules that 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 made people lose their citizenship automatically because of some act that they performed rather than them actually wanting to lose their citizenship. And so it's a really interesting two, three series, yeah, articles that or even a book, I think, that he's written on this subject. And and he shows you how it was even a deliberate plan on Warren's part. He was deliberately picking which cases the court would take on that he thought would be good in order to, to target these these laws. Yeah, that that is that's very, very interesting. And it shows you, you know, I suppose the you know the politics of the of the Supreme Court to some extent. I mean it's it's definitely it's definitely everywhere. Yeah, well and the other thing is it you know it's one thing to expand the rights of a citizen and the end to make it easier to retain citizenship, but totally not understanding the interplay between that and the tax side of it all. Yeah, all that that's absolutely right. The I mean the, the decision in a forum, you know, which was seen as a water well and was in fairness a watershed decision, you know, really you know, you know, in very large part, probably mostly, has contributed to the problems of Americans abroad today, mm-hmm. because so many of them would have lost citizenship under the rules before they were they were held unconstitutional. But you know, before before I forget this, I just want to make this observation here, generally, right? That if you think about this, I mean, the Supreme Court was was absolutely a hundred percent right. In in a forum and, and moving in this direction, because think of a situation where, you know, a majority in a democracy, a numerical majority in a democracy, can come together and say, well, you know, we don't like this group of people, this minority group, so we're just gonna, you know, strip them of their citizenship, right? I mean, that's that's pretty incredible, isn't it? Mm-hmm. If you think about it. But that was exactly what was going on. And not just in the United States, right? In if, you read, if you read Wales' work, he will he will explain that that was the purpose of the of the equal protection, well, of the citizenship of the citizenship clause of the of the Fourteenth Amendment, where you know anyone who's born in the United States is a citizen, established by the U.S. Constitution. That was the purpose of that clause, so that a you know you could not by legislation take that away because obviously if if you know if they if that clause wasn't there it would be much more difficult to to maintain and protect this citizenship of the people that 
had formerly been enslaved. That was the purpose of that clause to not allow that to happen. And as you see, as you see in the what century, century and a half since that clause was adopted, and certainly over the course of the of the 1900s, the 20th century, you saw, you know, that Congress was still trying to take people's citizenship away by legislation. It, It wasn't necessarily directed toward the same group of people that that the 14th Amendment was intended to protect. But nevertheless, that's what they were trying to do. If you deserted from the army, lost your citizenship, you were a naturalized citizen and you lived outside the country for a certain period of time, lost your citizenship. You were a woman and you married a non-citizen. You lost your citizenship. All of those things were considered to, if you know, as people thought about these things and understood what was going on, all of those things were finally understood to violate the 14th Amendment. Congress cannot, by legislation, take away people's citizenship. You know, it's, it's amazing that, so the 14th Amendment, is that 1868? Have I got that right? It was the aftermath of the of the Civil War. It was, yeah, 1860-something. I'd have to double I think, it. I think, all right, so it's around 1868 anyway, right? Yes. So, you know, the Euphorium decision comes down in 1967. A hundred years, right? A hundred years of continued weaponization of citizenship before the, you know, Supreme Court, you know, finally says, you know, enough already, you know, really in effect saying that Congress has been violating the rights of Americans for a hundred years. I mean, that's the effect of the decision, isn't it? John, there are a lot of people who have not studied this topic, have not really thought about this topic, and so don't and don't even understand that this has happened. Who I think today would agree with a lot of these laws that have now been overturned. Who they would say, yeah, if you do deserve, you should renounce, you should lose your citizenship. If and you know, if you live outside the country for X period of years, you shouldn't retain your U.S. citizenship. I think there are a lot of people who still would think that way and agree with those types of laws. I don't think there's any question about it. And another interesting factoid here is that, so a forum comes down in 1967, okay? And it was clear to any objective reader of that case. I mean, you know, the, the, the factual ba- content or backdrop was that this guy votes in a non-U.S. election, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, so they try to strip him of his citizenship. But the point is, I mean, it's very clear to any objective reader that what the decision was actually saying is that, you know, Congress can't strip people of their citizenship without their, without their consent. That's what the decision said. But yet, in the aftermath of that, you know, you get these people actually trying to interpret the decision as applying to voting only, okay? And it wasn't until, so 1967, it wasn't until 1986 that the legislation was actually amended to include the requirement of intention, right? Intention to relinquish citizenship. So during this whole period of time, all right, after a forum comes down and even after the 1980 decision in Vance and Teresis, right, which essentially was the Supreme Court reading the riot act again on this issue, even with the Supreme Court decision, the United States government was still ignoring this and weaponizing citizenship for years. And they're still doing it. And they're still doing it in a different way. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, Laura, you wonder what I wonder, you know, sort of, you know, reading your stuff and thinking about this. And then, you know, you listen to the dialogue in the United States about, you know, so, I mean, I don't think that, you know, it's, it's, it's like people don't have a clue that citizenship in the United States is not something the government gives you. It's something that you have by virtue of being born in the United States. They can't take away. They don't seem to understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and then that brings us, you know, to this whole, you know, I mean, how does this all apply then in the case of, you know, what we'll call citizenship taxation? I mean, how does it apply here? I mean, what would be, you know, I mean, I assume we all agree that, that this that this is the basis uh, of an argument for attacking citizenship taxation, right, in some way or form? Yeah, certainly, because the U.S. tax laws make Americans who are living outside the U.S. into second-class citizens. Well, that, that, that's definitely part of it. I think, you know, another step to take is also that Congress adopts laws that make maintaining citizenship untenable for many people in a way that you could argue, you know, there are doctrines of constructive eviction, constructive uh, dismissal from employment. And that's where constructive eviction is where, you know, you have the, the owner of a property makes for the, for the tenant of the property makes it really untenable for the tenant to stay there, such that the tenant really has no choice but to leave. The tenant is not, has not broke in that case is, has not broken the lease. They want, you know, under those conditions, they want to stay. It's just, it is just not possible to stay for whatever reason. The landlords made it impossible to stay. And the same idea with constructive dismissal from a position of employment. An employer can make conditions for the employee so terrible. It's not that the employee doesn't want the job. It's that they simply cannot stay in the job. And that I think those are directly analogous to what's happening here with what Congress is doing with U.S. citizenship for Americans who live outside the country. I, I think that's right. And I think that that is, I think that that actually, Laura, is the, you know, the 14th Amendment type of argument or the, you know, the constitutional type of argument here, however it's framed. I, I don't think that citizenship taxation per se is probably not unconstitutional, you know, just as a concept. But in its application here, you know, I think it is constructive dismissal. And I think, I think that people fail to make a critical distinction. If you want to say in a very general sense, can the United States impose taxation on people who don't live in the United States, regardless of their nationality? Yeah, sure. People, countries do that all the time in various ways. The critical distinction is, are you singling out people based on their nationality and treating them in a, in a way that is worse than you are treating other people? And, and, and then you can go one step even further in this case. These are really treating people worse. It is a lot worse. And it is because you are sing, bo- both singling out people based on their nationality 
and subjecting them to worse treatment. That's why you have the issues. Mm -hmm. So can you can you tax people living outside the country as, as, a, as a theoretical concept? Sure. But can you penalize it through, you know, these really harsh policies? That's a completely different ballgame. And people seem to confuse them and think that they're the same thing. Yeah, I, I, I think that I think that that is definitely is definitely on the right track. I mean, look, nobody, particularly given the high the high cost of renunciation of citizenship, you know, would start with the fee at the State Department for many people. You know, depending on what they're up to with their taxation stuff, can really get very high including the exit tax, that nobody is renouncing U.S. citizenship because philosophically they don't want to be a U.S. citizen, at least at these costs. Agreed? Certainly. Yeah. So it, it really is the result of, you know, really being abused and, and really being disadvantaged in life because of their U.S. citizenship. And, you know, I wonder, I mean, doesn't the fact that the U.S. laws, I mean, the U.S. laws make U.S. citizenship a disability anytime you leave the United States. I think there's just a range of disabilities. For some, they're minor. You know, even if, you know, even if you're, you know, just, you know, say a retiree abroad, whatever, you know, you, you still may have trouble getting a bank account somewhere if you really want one, right? Right. You know, to the range of, you know, people who've lived there, who, you know, the whole financial center of gravity is outside where it's completely suffocating, right? Right. But I mean, just generally, I mean, in a country really, you know, have laws that, that, that make its own citizenship a disability the way, the way the, U, the U.S. has done with U.S. citizenship. I mean, I, I you know, that's, yeah, it's, it, it's really unbelievable to, to some extent that how, how much they seem to hate people who have moved out of the U.S., which kind of brings us to the next part of the argument in, in paper eight here, where Laura's talking about animus and how if, if, if a law is based on animus, then it, it's, I don't know what the right words are, but it basically, the you you can't you can't have a law that's based on prejudice against a specific group. Maybe Laura can say that better than I have. Well, essentially, there's. So I said that the that the U.S. Supreme Court has developed doctrines under the Fourteenth Amendment, and this has happened after Cook v. Tate was decided in 1924. Mm -hmm. So this next one. Is, is based on animus. And basically what it says is that if a law, if the court finds that a law either, either was adopted or is maintained with an element of animus, it cannot stand. It violates the 14th Amendment. And this, in this case, it bypasses, you know, the, the rational basis or the strict scrutiny analysis. It completely bypasses it. That becomes irrelevant. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about where this came from and what it means. The first case that's, that's pointed to in a discussion of this doctrine is the Department of Agriculture versus Marino. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's from 1973. 
And this involves a 1971 amendment to the Food Stamp Act. And under that amendment, it withdrew food stamp benefits if any individual living in a household was unrelated to the other resident. And there's, you know, the, the, the record shows that this was motivated by members of Congress who didn't want hippies and hippie communes from participating in the food stamp program. And the court said that that alone was enough to show that the law withdrawing the food stamp benefits was adopted in anim and that that no law should be adopted in animus, and, and automatically that means it's, it violates the 14th Amendment. The court said, if the constitutional conception of equal protection of the laws means anything, it must at the very least mean that a bare congressional desire to harm a politically unpopular, unpopular group cannot constitute a legitimate governmental interest. And so since Marino, there's been some other cases developing this doctrine. One is one that we talked about in a, in a prior podcast, the city of Claiborne versus Claiborne Living Center from 1985, where the city required a special zoning uh, permit for a proposed group home for cognitively disabled. And even though the court refused to classify cognitively disabled people as a suspect class heightened subject to strict scrutiny, they still ruled that the requirement for the permit violated equal protection rights. Because requiring the permit in this case appears to us to rest on an irrational prejudice against the mentally retarded. And then you have actually more than one decision of the U.S. Supreme Court connected to same-sex relationships. You have Romer v. Evans, which involved Colorado's Constitutional Amendment 2, which sought to avoid any existing discrimination pol- anti-discrimination policies in, in Colorado that were intended to protect gay men and lesbians at various levels of state government. And so this this amendment that they attempted to, they wanted to adopt, forbade cities, counties, departments, or, you know, basically local and state legislators from passing any protections in the future. And the, the U.S. Supreme Court struck this down, saying the amendment seems inexplicable by anything but animus towards the class it affects. So there's some other examples of that, but I won't get into those. I think. Another thing that's interesting to to know about this animus is that you don't have to, it doesn't, the the law doesn't have to absolutely positively and only be founded on animus. You just need to be able to show that some element of either its adoption or its maintenance has an element of, of animus in it. It's also relatively easy to show animus and you don't need very extensive evidence. Marino was decided on what was described as sparse legislative history, and the evidence doesn't have to be explicit. It can be inferred. It can be found in a variety of sources beyond legislative history, such as in the media and the structure of the law in question. And and like I said, it's not necessary that it be motivated solely by animus. It It suffices that animus is lurking as a motivation. And so I think if you understand this doctrine and you look at what's happening with our extraterritorial tax system, you can see repeated and obvious amp- examples of, of animus towards people who live outside the country. You can go back to the Revenue Act of 1864, which was the first one that taxed overseas Americans on their worldwide income as opposed to just their U.S. source income. And you've got in the legislative history, you've got Senator Jacob Collamer of Vermont. 
he says, why does he say that this change was needed to, to tax on worldwide income? Not because it served any one or more governmental interest, but because Americans skulk away to Paris to avoiding the risk of being drafted and they should not get off with as low a tax as anybody else. And then you see when the income tax was reinstated in 1894, you see Senator George Hoare of Massachusetts. How does he defend taxing Americans outside the U.S. on their worldwide income or taxing them at all even? He says, if if there is one class of person, he says he is the one human being we ought to tax. If there is any good in an income tax, it would be a good thing if it did that. So basically, he's saying if we should tax anybody, it should be people who live outside the United States. Then look at the exit tax in the 1990s, and you see multiple statements of animus about overseas Americans. You see Senator Max Baucus, Baucus, however you pronounce his name. Americans are going to great lengths, thousands of miles to other countries to avoid paying their fair share. In a metaphorical sense, burning the flag, giving up what should be their most sacred possession to find a tax loop, their sacred possession, their American citizenship, to find a, a tax loophole. These are precisely the sort of greedy, unpatriotic people that you know, let us not allow more of these rich freeloaders to get away. And Charles Rangel, I would hope one day that we'll just publish the names of the people that America's given so much to. They care so little about citizenship, they would flee in order to avoid taxes. Neil Abercrombie, he calls overseas Americans sleazy bums who don't want to pay their taxes. They leave this country, renounce their citizenship. How can you expect me to have one iota of sympathy for them? And Leslie Samuel, when he was assistant secretary in the, for tax policy in the U.S. Department of Treasury, these expatriates are really like economic Benedict Arnold. You can, you can also look at the titles and terminology of the laws themselves. You've got the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, FATCA, one letter away from FATCAT. That's not mm -hmm. exactly a compliment. You've got the Global Intangible Low Taxed Income, or GUILTY. I don't know how you can get any more evidence of animus in that title. You know, I, I find it unbelievable that a congressman could possibly refer to anybody as a freeloader. I mean, Jesus Christ. I mean, there is no, there is no more clear class of freeloaders than politicians. I mean, it's disgusting. And Max Bacchus or Bacchus, whatever, is a complete idiot, regardless of how his name is pronounced. I mean, you know, like this stuff is, is, is simply unbelievable, right? But one more example, John, one more example, then I'll let you go. Okay. This one is from 2023. Senate Finance Committee report saying repeatedly in the same report, dual citizenship affords unique opportunities for cross-border tax evasion. Most people, most Americans who live outside the United States are dual citizens. Well, of course, that comes from Senator, another Democrat, Senator Wyden, okay? I mean, you know, these people are, it's not that they're out of their mind, it's that their minds aren't cultivated and developed enough. To imagine anything else. But a couple of points here, right, that I think are interesting. One of them is that a very large number of these laws that impose such burdens on Americans abroad come in as revenue offsets, right? 
In other words, you know, they come in as a way to pay for some other kind of legislation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we want to raise some money. Let's look at somebody we don't like who doesn't have representation, right? Americans abroad. I mean, that is certainly consistent, right, with your doctrine of animus, right? That's but, exactly it. But let me let me offer a more sort of academic perspective on this. I'd be very interested in both of your views on this. So I was thinking about this yesterday, right? And what we're talking about here is, you know, the problem of defining, you know, people who don't live in the United States as U.S. tax residents, right? And I think that we would all agree that citizenship really is the primary determinant of U.S. tax residency, right? In other words, you start there, if you're a citizen, nothing else matters, right? Right. Okay. I, I, I you know, I, I think if you live outside the United States, yeah. If you live inside the United States, you live in the United States. Yeah. You're, you're a tax resident. Doesn't matter whether you're a citizen or not. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, it doesn't matter where you live if you're if you're a citizen, though. But but okay, either way, I mean, we agree. Obviously, everybody knows that you know citizenship is a sufficient condition for U.S. tax residency, right? Right. Well, you know, it's really interesting here. One of the things that's really interesting, and I wonder, you know, to some extent, if this doesn't under uh, under undergird is that the word? So anyway, support your argument for the animus is that. You know, we look at this huge uh, network of U.S. tax treaties, right? And one of the the things in all these tax treaties is a tiebreaker provision, right? A provision where if somebody happens to be a tax resident of both countries, I uh, say the United States and, you know, whatever, Ireland, France, what have you, you know, it said, well, no, you can't be a tax resident of two countries. So let's let's have a tiebreak and let's in the treaty, define the ta the factors that are going to be used to determine which country the person's a tax resident of, right? Now, mm -hmm. remember, the United States uses citizenship as a sufficient condition, right, for tax residency. But if we look at the treaty tiebreak, here's what they look at in order, right? And this is also consistent with the OECD tax treaties, right? First thing you look at is where the person has a permanent home, Okay. You know, I mean, that's clearly residence, right? Permanent home residence, okay? And then it says, all right, if a person has a permanent home in both countries, then you go to something I'm going to just call the center of vital interest, business interest, family interest, right? All right. And if the person has, you know, vital interest in both countries, then you go to habitual abode. And then... If you haven't looked at all the things that matter most, all the things that look to matter most, you know what you look to then? Citizenship or nationality, right? In other words, the whole international treaty network and U.S. tax treaties are premised on the assumption that citizenship is the least important determinant of what's relevant for tax residency in comparison to where you know, various aspects of residency, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that is... John, you can go further than that. Most countries, even their, in, you know, their internal tax rules, citizenship has is not relevant to who's subject to, who's a tax resident of that country and who isn't. 
Oh, absolutely. It's almost never relevant, but but I'm linking this to the you know to your your doctrine of anarchy. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at you know. I mean, even the United States objectively says no citizenship doesn't matter, but we hate citizens abroad so much that we're going to do this to them. Now, another thing that is really fascinating when you look at these treaty tie these U.S. treaty tiebreak things. So let's say we have a resident who's a green card holder versus a citizen. Okay, now a green card holder, by definition, is required to intend to live permanently in the United States or they lose the green card. We know from Schneider and Rusk and other things, okay, that a U.S. citizen is not required to live in the United States, right? In fact, that's why many green card holders become citizens, right? You know, so they, you know, so they can leave and come back and not worry about losing their status. But now let's bring this back over to these treaty tiebreak rules, right? So a green card holder, a green card holder who is required by the definition of a green card to intend to live permanently in the United States, residents in the United States, is permitted to use the treaty to tiebreak to not be treated as a U.S. tax resident. But a U.S. citizen who may never have lived in the United States and is not required to live in the United States is denied, because of the saving clause, the opportunity to use the tiebreak to not be a U.S. resident. I mean, isn't that absolutely unbelievable? Yeah. Yeah. What do you, what do you think, Laura? I mean, have you thought about it from that point of view as well? Well, it's it's a, it's another example of of wanting to punish citizens for not living in the country. I think that's right. I mean, I think that those are two, you know, examples of sort of the general landscape, if you will, right? You know, the landscape, the presumption of the, you know, the the hatred of citizens that, you know, might want to become ta- become tax residents of another country, right? You know, to leave the United States. And, you know, it would be very interesting, you know, to hear people like Max Backus and, you know, all these other morons from the 90s, right? It would be very interesting, you know, to listen to them to how to explain, you know, why somehow, you know, if we look at U.S. tax treaties, why is clear citizenship is, you know, least important on the treaty tiebreak for a green card holder, but somehow just being a U.S. citizen, you know, means you can't get out of this at all. I mean, it's as though, you know, which is, you know, my view of this is that, you know, you may have a constitutional right to U.S. citizenship, but the reality is that U.S. citizenship is a property interest that the government has in the state and, and its citizens. I think what you see with people who really want to defend the the laws as they are what at least one response that you get to what you just said john is well if you're citizen living outside the country well because you have citizenship this means you have the right to return and you your taxes are basically and the argument would be something along these lines the the, what you pay for your insurance policy to be able to return to the united states something a green card holder wouldn't have but it would be something along those lines of, you know, you, if you are, if you choose to maintain the rights that come with citizenship, you should have to pay for that. And what they're am completely missing in that argumentation, you can ask whether they're missing it deliberately or not, but what they are completely missing is that 
if citizenship is and it is a constitutional right, if citizenship is and it is a human right, you don't pay to have the rights that come with citizenship. If you're telling someone you need to pay to have those rights, you've just denied them the right. You don't pay for any other kind of right. That's what the essence of a right is. It does not cost you anything. You don't need to pay for some sort of insurance to be able to return to your country if if that's already a right that you possess. Well, I think I think that I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. Yes. So the question, you know, so I mean, why is this? Why is this beyond the mind of the average American? Why? Why do they? I mean, do they think so little of their? Maybe they think so little of their citizenship that this stuff never occurs to them. I, I think they just don't understand. They don't understand that other countries have tax systems. They don't understand what it takes to be allowed to live legally in another country. And they don't understand why someone would live outside the United States. They don't understand why someone would leave the greatest country on, on Earth. Huh. Yeah. The only reason they can see is to avoid taxes. Maybe, maybe because they themselves have no reason to live outside the country. It's difficult for them to understand why someone else might have a reason to. Well, I think that, that might be part of it. But what I think is that American culture is about taxation. I think America is about taxation. Taxation is about America. Well, that, 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 that is definitely true. There is a melding of the concepts of citizenship and taxpayer. It, it, it's, I think for many, many people, it's very difficult to separate the two concepts and see them as quite different things. It's very difficult. If someone is a citizen, it's, it's quite difficult to, to, to see them as anything other than a taxpayer. That citizenship means you are a taxpayer, and it doesn't mean that much else. Well, I, I think that's exactly right. It makes me wonder if you know if maybe Congress should prohibit people having names and just have them operate with their social security numbers, and that's it. You know that that would make the point, I think, a little more clearly. Yeah, except that you don't have to be a citizen to get a social security number. You can use your taxpayer identification number. Yeah. The ones we have neither can just be called illegals. <laughs> you know, it's been, anyway. uh, you know, so, some more animals, you know, here, there, and everywhere. I mean, the U.S. tax code has animals everywhere towards all kinds of people. This is yeah, true. Different groups. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's for, it was probably horrible in its day, but I mean, it's, it just hasn't evolved. You know, with the times, I mean, leaving aside the definition of tax residency, I mean, you know, and this is a conservative talking, I mean, I think that, you know, the idea of a country where people are taxed more highly on labor than on income from investing, you know, is, I think it's just, I think it's absolutely immoral. There's, there's, you know, different people have done several studies on how the tax code penalizes different groups of people. Yeah, we're talking about one specific group, but certainly there are others. Yes, certainly there are. So, okay, do you think we can wrap this up, Laura? We've got, basically, you, you're, you've been telling us about all the different ways that extraterritorial tax violates the 14th Amendment. And in, in this paper, we talked about second-class citizenship and animus towards overseas Americans. 
Any, any final thoughts you'd like to add to that? Well, no, I think this is a good discussion. And the next paper, number nine, will be about the forcible destruction of citizenship. Excellent. And thank, of, so thank I went you. there a little bit today, but I'm looking forward to discussing that more. All right, well, that, that sounds great. And so, you know, as a reminder to anybody who's listening, if you've gotten this far, that we are seat, stop, extraterritorial, American taxation. And I think now, and as we often close with the following question, Karen and Laura, do you think it might be a good idea for Americans to align for the purpose of stopping extraterritorial American taxation now? Would you agree? Of course. Definitely. That's the right answer. Okay. Thank you both. Great discussion. Thank you, John. Thank you, Karen and John. Thank you, Laura.